This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2016, held at Faith Builders on August 1 through 5. All right, welcome back. We're going to go ahead and get started again. Uh, I know how it is about this point in Teachers Week. If you're like me, it's time to quit sitting and uh, do some things. So I feel for you in that regard. And I feel bad that you have to sit a little longer and listen to me again. So I won't be offended if you decide, hey, you're going to go out and run around the block and do something different. Uh, feel free to stand up and do that. I'm an active person, and I, I get tired of sitting. I always feel like as a teacher, I get lucky in that regard. I get to stand up in front of the room and walk around and pace around and whip my hands in the air. And, uh, and you know, our students have to sit there and, and listen to all of that. So I try to remember that and give them chances to be active as well. All right, so obviously I'm a teacher, so I always like to begin with review, so we'll do that again today. I'd like to have a sense for what we're talking about and where we're headed. So to review what we've talked about in the last two days, we've begun with we are Anabaptists. We have traditionally treated knowledge a bit like a loaded gun. However, we recognize that we will offer knowledge in our schools. That's what we do. So we are determined to reshape that knowledge into godly wisdom. That's our swords into plowshares idea. Yesterday, we talked about choices. I said that knowledge is tried by the need to make choices. That is the avenue by which we can do some shaping. Choices turn knowledge into a tool rather than a weapon. So we ought to require students to use their knowledge to make choices require students to use their knowledge as a tool rather than a weapon. And we ended yesterday with a bit of a question, and uh, we talked about it just a little, and that is, so why is an old man wise? We generally look at old people as being wiser than young people. And uh, I talked about the fact that they've made a lot of hard choices in their life. And those hard choices accumulate to something that contributes to this idea of old people being wise. And I think humility is obviously a central piece of that. So tough choices, and may I add the natural consequences of those tough choices are what, I think, spawn humility in us, and ultimately wisdom. So a lifetime of tough choices and their natural consequences humble a man. And sometimes we call this lifetime of making tough choices something that I think is a little more common to us, and that is we just simply call them life experiences. And I'm sure you've heard people say things like, experience is actually the best teacher. And I think that contributes to the wisdom of an older person. And I've experienced this firsthand, of course. I'm an idealistic person, and... I remember especially I went through a time whenever I wanted to follow Jesus in a more radical way and I wanted to be very serious about it. And I took studying scripture super seriously and I still do, but it was kind of a new thing for me at that time coming out of those selfish adolescent years. And I remember I would I would hear of different things or maybe certain interpretations of a of a particular scripture, and I would get all excited about it. And I would think, you know, that is the answer. I now found the thing that I never 
you know, that I never knew before that is going to change everything for me. And I would go talk to my dad about it, and I'd say, hey, and I would think, you know, he surely hasn't heard about this one. You know, this is, uh, this is an interpretation that he hasn't heard about. And I particularly remember uh, reading, uh, reading about Judas one time, and I got all excited about this, this, the way this one fellow was interpreting the description. I thought, you know, that, that is groundbreaking. And I went to my dad, and I was telling him about this, and he said, yeah, you know, I remember them talking about that uh, 30 years ago. And, yeah, that's, that's a way of, of viewing that scripture. And there was a calmness about, about this that, as a young person, I didn't have. I was just all wound up about this new interpretation. And it's those, that lifetime of experiences that, that challenges us and shapes us and makes us into something different. And I think even makes us into people that respond differently in, in certain situations. So old people are wise because they've had a life of experiences. And I'd like to talk about that some today. And one of the things in my study for these topics was, uh, so I was, I was looking in the, in the scriptures about, uh, to search for knowledge. And also, not just for myself, but to search how scripture used knowledge. And, you know, I came across a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about the importance of knowledge and how much we ought to go after it. And so I thought to myself, okay, so I plan to talk about a bit of skepticism towards knowledge in and of itself. But the Bible seems to really accept it. And so, you know, why is this? And one of the things I'd like to remind you of is that the Bible was written before the information age. And our version of knowledge... I think is a bit different from the version of knowledge that many of the Bible writers were maybe thinking about or speaking of. So I did a little research on that as well. I am not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the matter. I, I have to look everything up Greek on the internet if I want to know what it is because uh, I have no knowledge in that regard. But I did a little research on the Hebrew and the Greek behind uh, the usage of knowledge in Scripture and I found some interesting things. So... In the New Testament, the word that is most often translated into knowledge is a Greek word, gnosko. I have no idea if I'm even pronouncing that correctly, but I looked up what that Greek word really is intended to embody. And this is what I found. It means to learn to know, to come to know, to get a knowledge of, perceive. And then there were some odd things in the definition that those of us that come from the Western world are not used to throwing at knowledge, feel, understand, Perceived to have knowledge of, to become acquainted with. So I think, once again, when we see the word knowledge used in Scripture, we need to remember that it is not the Western definition of knowledge, possibly, but an idea that is bigger than what we're used to. And they're probably talking about something that is maybe closer to what we call wisdom. Now, obviously, Scripture also talks about wisdom. Also, in the Old Testament, the word that is most often translated knowledge is this yada, and that is to perceive and see, to find out, and once again, some interesting things are part of this definition, to discern, to discriminate, to distinguish, and interestingly enough, to know by experience was, is part of, of what the Scripture means when it uses the word knowledge. And this word is used 950 times in the Old Testament, I discovered, which is quite a bit. And of course, we know that Proverbs gets a lot of credit for that. But once again, the word that is actually used there is one that embodies more than just knowing a fact. 
means even to know by experience. And I think that as educators, as Anabaptist educators, if we really want to make the transition from knowledge to wisdom, we have to have an element in our classrooms where we know by experience. That's a difficult thing to do in such a setting. I think we have to put a lot of creativity into that. We have to put a lot of energy into it because it will not happen automatically. So sometimes we talk about real life. And you've probably heard something like this before. Maybe a student said something like this, especially at the end of their time in our schools. They say something like, oh, it's really scary to think about entering the real world. And as a high school teacher, when I've heard that, and I've heard it from a number of my own students, it felt a little like a slap in the face. I thought, well, what what have I been doing for the last two years with you? I guess I'm just playing in the, in the daisies. And now you're going to get to, you know, to the real world. And I remember that hit me in the gut the first time I heard one of my graduates say that in their graduation speech. Yeah, I was a little offended. But I think it was good for me to hear because I have to ask myself, okay, so what am I doing with my students? Is it real life? Or am I just creating something that ultimately is not connected to who they really are and what they're going to experience when they walk out of this school. So I want to spend some time talking about what it means to make our time with our students at school real life. So the way I like to put it is your students ought to feel the world under their feet, which obviously you as the teacher are going to have to feel the world under your feet in that case. And our world is rapidly changing, and one of the things that is sometimes a little bit scary about that to me is the fact that I think that I'm recognizing in a new way that the next generation seems to become increasingly disconnected from what we sometimes call the real world. And I'm not pointing a finger at the next generation because I myself have experienced this at some level, where I find myself feeling like I'm becoming increasingly disconnected from what we call the real world. And sometimes when I think about the possibility of ever having a child, I think, boy, I sure wish that my child could experience something even different than maybe I experience. Something that's more connected to the realities of what we call the old days. Now, we can't go back to the old days, so we have to evaluate what it means to experience real life now. So a few things that I wonder about our students. Sometimes I wonder, do my guys know how heavy a hay bale really is? Especially when it's a little wet. You know, it takes a really hot day and about several hundred or even more really heavy hay bales before you really know how heavy a hay bale is. But now we have machines that stack bales for us, and so most of us don't even know how heavy a hay bale is anymore. Something even more basic. Do your students know how hot the sun is? You know, we live in air-conditioned buildings and we isolate ourselves off from the sun itself in a way that we can forget how hot the sun is. And you know, once again, those days when if you've been up in the top of a hay mow or whatever your experience may be, where it is so hot you're not sure if you're going to make it and the sweat is just dripping off the tip of your nose, you understand something about the heat of the sun that someone that's never been there will never know. Do our students know how hot the sun is? Do our students know how good water is? Until you've been so thirsty that you just think you can't make it another 10 minutes without a drink of water, you don't know how good water is. 
And most of us don't experience that. Now, once again, we can. the point here is not to go self-inflict pain on ourselves so that we can know these things. We have to reckon with the world that we live in now, but still ask the question, how do we connect ourselves to real life? What's it mean to make school be real life? The question I sometimes ask my students is, how far is 26 miles? And they don't think it's very far. But I run marathons, and I can tell you how far 26 miles is. Because I step off every single step between the starting line and the finish line, and 26 miles is really far when you have to run that far. It's another thing to hop in a car and drive 26 miles. But you know how far 26 miles is when your feet hurt with every step. And you're not sure if you can make it to the next telephone pole, and you know that you're only at mile 13. Suddenly, 26 miles takes on a whole new reality. My brother-in-law used to make fun of us. Uh, one of my brothers and I, we like to do distance running. And he used to make fun of us and he'd say, you guys, it's not near as bad as what you say it is. You know, you're just, you're making it out to be a big deal, you know, like, whatever. Well, it was interesting how his perspective changed when his, his boys started to get a little older. And he said, hey, Dad, you know, we, we want to try running. Uh, they want to try to run a half marathon. So he said, oh, let's go out and let's do, you know, the 13.1 miles. It was interesting how his conversation with me after that about running was a bit different than before he ran 13.1 miles with his boys. Once he actually experienced his feet pounding against the ground for that amount of time, and the lack of water and, and the heat that you experienced in that moment, his perspective on running that distance was quite different, and he talked about it in a different way. Uh, I don't think he made light of my brother and I running marathons as much after that because he realized there is actually something real about the pain and the, the toil that we talk about in that process. Do our students experience real life at school? So I say, help your students feel the world under their feet and obviously, in order to do that, you're going to have to uh, take their shoes off. And one of the things that in the running world we sometimes talk about is running barefoot. And, and it's become a bit of a craze, and I'm not into the craze of it, but I just want to tell you a little bit about barefoot running. So most of us today, if we would go out and I'd have you run around the gym, uh, I would enjoy watching you run, and, and I'm going to suggest that most of you would be what we call a heel striker which means that when you run, your foot goes out in front of you and it strikes the ground in front of your center of gravity, which is interesting because that's actually like hitting the brakes for a little bit before you actually pass over the center of gravity of your foot and propel yourself forward. So I'm not quite sure why we would brake and then brake and then brake, but that is what we do when we run. Uh, lots of times I pass joggers on the road and the first thing I notice about them is like, oh yeah, they're a hill striker, that's interesting. Uh, they're working against themselves. Well, it's interesting because why are we heel strikers? Why do we do this? Well, one of the reasons we're heel strikers is because we wear shoes. Try heel striking on pavement in your bare feet sometime. Uh, that's painful. So this picture here demonstrates uh, a common form for running where the strike point is ahead of the body and this guy's jamming his heel into the ground. But he can only do this because he wears shoes with a lot of cushion on the heel and so he doesn't feel any pain when he jams his heel into the ground like that as he runs. Once again, sometimes as we get farther and farther from the reality of real life, we think something is a certain way. And the only reason we think it's that way is because our heels are cushioned. We aren't actually experiencing the way it really is, and that is if he took those shoes off, that would hurt. That would be painful. 
So I've always told my guys, if they want to get into running, I say, hey, just go back to the simple stuff. You don't need a $100 pair of Mizuno running shoes. You go out and you just do a little barefoot running. Now, the interesting thing is, if you go and do that, it's probably going to hurt when you, when you first try to run barefoot because your feet have become very conditioned to shoes that look like this that are designed to give you a tremendous amount of cushion and save your feet from any kind of pain or hard work that would go along with running barefoot. And we're used to that. And I'm not suggesting we go away from that. Uh, we're used to wearing shoes, and we ought to wear shoes. That's, that's perfectly fine. But if you would take those shoes off and decide, I'm going to begin to do some barefoot running, your feet would get very sore because they're not built up to that. You have a lot of tendons in your feet, and you obviously have to have some calluses on the bottom of your feet in order to withstand some of that. Our feet would get sore from that. And, and so sometimes it feels like it, it would be a ridiculous or a crazy thing to do, to take your shoes off. But I think we have to do that for our students. We have to help them take their shoes off and feel what the earth really feels like. This is what it's really like if you don't have that cushion on, on, on your heel. So running barefoot seems a bit crazy, but a couple good things come from it. First of all, our feet are actually made for it. God designed our feet in a way that can, they actually can withstand running barefoot. And I've not done this. I've no desire to do this, but I've ran with guys that run whole marathons barefoot, and their feet are built up for it. They're designed to be able to withstand that. Everybody's feet can't do that, but our feet are capable of doing this. So our feet are made for it. Secondly, when we run barefoot, it actually strengthens our feet. They become stronger. And thirdly, we actually become faster runners because the form of pulling your strike point back is far more efficient. Now you're not hitting the brakes as you move along. You're propelling yourself forward. So as we ask our students to experience real life, I think we actually help them to grow. Number one, their feet become tougher. And number two, they actually become better runners. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with helping your students understand how hot the sun really is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking your students to understand, you know, how far it is around the softball field. You know, it's okay to ask them to work hard and experience life as it actually is. And, and I think that our world is increasingly pushing us away from that. So we ask our students to feel the world under their feet. Secondly, more is caught than taught. Once again, I don't believe this is a new idea to you. It's not a new idea to me, and yet I keep, I keep teaching in a way in my classroom that would make you believe that I don't believe this. I know that more is caught than taught, but I keep blabbing away, even though I know that somewhere down inside of me that, that I need to help my students experience more things and not necessarily hear more words from me. Students don't actually remember that many of your words. I remember almost everything I say, and I think they ought to remember it. And I find out later, you know, they didn't actually think it was that great, obviously, because they didn't even remember it. They don't actually remember that much of what we say. Now, we don't want to quit talking. But we need to remember that more is caught than taught. And that is where experience comes in. That's why life experience, once again, is so powerful. So an older person understands things that a younger person doesn't because they've experienced things. It wasn't just words that were put at them. They've actually lived a life. They've made some tough choices. They've experienced some consequences, good and bad. And those experiences are a better teacher 
often than what I personally can be to a student. So I thought right now, at this very moment, we're just going to hit the pause button, and I asked two teachers to tell us a story from their experience. We're just going to get a window into some real teaching experiences, because I think those teach us more than sometimes that academic knowledge and the the blustery words that we teachers tend to be full of. So I'm going to ask Diana to come up and tell a story from her experience, and then uh, John Mark. I'm not sure where it... Uh, if you just come up after her, and uh, let's enjoy their experiences. I had a student named Daniel who walked into my room, I mean, clocked into my room every morning with his shoes untied, his shirt tail was out, a few times his shirt may have been buttoned, and his hair was rarely ever combed. Daniel was a very hard student to love. He was very mean, and he had a low, gruff voice, and he didn't see any reason that all the other people in the line in front of him in the drinking fountain should get a drink before he did. Why couldn't he be first? And so he'd push and get in whenever he wanted to. Um, One thing Daniel did, uh, his appearance was definitely atrocious most days. His writing was also very atrocious. He was a smart boy, very intelligent, could read an encyclopedia and remember everything that it said. But he did not enjoy doing his assignments, and particularly not not writing. So we tried all kinds of different things to get Daniel to improve his writing. He had to redo his work or stay in at recess, you know, all the things you've tried. Finally, one day, I said, Daniel, when do you think your writing is going to improve? And he looked at me. Do you think you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you'll write nicer than you did today? Or maybe when you're in high school. How about when you're in high school? Is that when it's going to get better? And he just kept looking at me. I bet when you turn 18, that's when your writing's going to improve. And then I said, David, do you think anyone's ever going to want to hire you? If your writing, if your work is going to be like your writing is, and you can just see the wheels turning. And he said no. And I think that was the start of David's writing improving, at least for a little bit. Close to the end of the year, I took my students over to my grandparents to work. And my grandparents lived uh, just down the road. So my grandpa came and all the students piled in the back of his truck. And we went over to work for my grandpa. And we were there for about two hours. And on the way home, the students, again, were all in the back. And you have to know that my grandpa is enjoyed by everyone. Everyone likes my grandpa, and my grandpa enjoys everyone. However, he he had, I hopped in the truck. The students were on the back. My grandpa came in, closed the door, and he said, Diana, how do you get along with David? And the chills went up and down my back when I realized that God had given me love for David, much more love than I ever had in my own strength. God had filled me with love for David, and... I realized that I was the one who was learning in that situation. When you look back uh, over a course of several years of teaching, you realize that those highlight moments actually aren't as often as, as you thought they would be before you start teaching. 
Uh, so when Kyle asked me to tell a story, I, I, it took me a while to come up with them, and then I started, I had tons of them, so I want to tell like three, but I'm going to only tell one. Um, it was my second year of teaching, and um, one of my students was, shall we say, disrespectful. Um, he, this was outside of school. If we weren't in school, he was, he was constantly saying things to me and just not... Um, doing or he he wasn't acting respectful. And by the way, I don't necessarily recommend this course of action. This this is what happened um in in my experience. So, one evening I was at their place for supper and um we had a nice evening. We were talking and and stuff and and this boy was respectful uh with his parents around, but as I was turning to leave, I heard something coming behind me and I felt him grab me and try to throw me to the ground. He was, he was a big kid. Um, and so now what do I do? I, um, I let my instincts take over. And I wrestled him to the ground and pinned him. Um, and I held him there until he gave up. And then he... Uh, he gave up, so I helped him back to his feet, turned to leave, and he hit me again. Ten seconds later, he was back in the same position he had been. This time, instead of fighting for a long period of time, he actually gave up pretty quickly. And a change came over him very, very dramatically. After that, he was always respectful. He actually still stays in contact with me a, a little bit. Uh, this has been eight years ago. Uh, <clears throat> there was something about that that understanding that you know what my teacher actually is going to uh, I don't know show his dominance. I, I don't know how what how to describe it, but I'm going to get down in the dirt and wrestle with him. Um, the young man was at that point he was on a trajectory that was very dangerous. And uh, he's not exactly where he ought to be now, but he's, he's much better. And I, and I, I actually think that just understanding uh, that there are forces bigger than myself helped him to, to get there. Well, thank you for those stories. There's a little bit of real life there. I can't say that, you know, you got to say getting down and wrestling with someone is kind of real life. Uh, and I certainly know loving people is real life. Uh, so I, re- I really do. I think school is real life. Uh, it's part of, uh, part of who we are. And, and, yeah, I hope that that can be your experience for sure. Thank you for those real life stories. Um, yeah, I wouldn't have minded seeing that, John Mark. But, uh, yeah. I I gotta watch. I got a little story rabbit trail coming because I never. Uh, he reminded me of this. I also had a little wrestling match with students one time. It must be an FBCS teacher thing. Where's Gerald at? Did he have a wrestling match? <laughs> um, this is actually when I was teaching in Chambersburg. I took my guys camping, and yeah, divine providence is important in most of these moments because 
Uh, two guys tried to jump me on a trail after dark one night. They were going to see if they could take Brother Kyle down, I guess. And the interesting thing is they could have easily done it. They were both uh, bigger than me and working together. There's no way I could have made it. But they made, a, they made a, a, I think, a divinely instituted mistake. And that is that one thought he was going to grab this leg and the other one bent down to grab the other leg. They didn't even realize that both their heads were right here. <laughs> they were both trying to get each leg. And so I just grabbed both heads and just hung on. <laughs> And, you know, there's only so much you can do when your head's in a headlock. So, you know, it, it, worked, it worked out okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, John Mark's story reminded me of that one. Uh, yeah, real life, you know. Sometimes it gets a little dirty, right? <clears throat> so more is caught than taught. Uh, in school, uh, well, let me back and let me say this. I think Anabaptist educators need, uh, we need to get off of what I would call the efficiency bust because real life is not efficient. Real life is very inefficient. And I've discovered that in my classes. And when I've attempted to do real life in my classes, boy, does it bog me down. So one of my favorite classes these days is economics. And I mentioned some economics projects the other day. And one of the ones I do is I, I mentioned how I give uh, different groups a little money. And they go out and they essentially try to multiply that money. But that's not the end of it. We try to do something with that money, and we try to help people. So, you know, we want our young people to be people that put, you know, sometimes we say money in the offering, or they're giving. They use their resources to bless the people around them. Well, I can get up and I can teach that to my students, but oh boy, it's a whole lot better to just do it. So, it works out great. Uh, So far, since I've been doing the project, I don't know if this is good or bad, but for us, I'm really proud of it. We make about $1,000 a year off of the $10 that I give them, and we give it away. It is an interesting experiment or an interesting reality, whatever you want to call it, to sit there as a group of 11th, 12th grade students and say, hey, who are we going to help? And, you know, there's some ideas here and there, and sometimes, you know, it's night, well, man, that's a lot. Do we want to give all that to that, you know? And the reality of, of actually managing your money and giving it to God suddenly becomes more than me just teaching it to them. It's a reality that we're reckoning with right there in our room. We're talking about it. Who are we going to give this to? Who are we going to help? And I think that we can get more creative. I think we can do more things like that in our classrooms if we put the energy into it. My goal is to do that more and more in in other classes. I recognize a math class might be a little tricky to do some of those things. So I'm sure there's, that sometimes there's, there's just a time to just get down to business and be efficient and learn the next math lesson. But I think we can do better at bringing real life into our schools. And I, one of my goals is to have students come out of FBCS, and I'd like to quit hearing that in those graduation speeches where, that's a little scary, getting out ahead into real life. I, want, I, I don't want to hear that anymore. And I don't know. I'm sure we'll hear it some more in the future, but I'm going to try to work against that, and I know that my fellow teachers are also doing that. You know, right now, uh, the one group bought a, a bow, and they tried to resell it, put it on eBay, resell the thing, and, you know, it has not resold. That bow has been sitting on eBay the whole summer, and I think they're going to take a loss on that thing. And once again, to me, I just think it's a great way for them to reckon with the realities of life. You know, they were so sure that they were getting an amazing deal on this bow and they were going to be able to resell the thing for like $200 more than what they paid for it. And from the beginning inside, I thought to myself, boy, you're going to be lucky if you resell that bow for more than what you're paying for it. 
Well, we're on the brink of getting ready. When they come back to school here at the beginning of the year, we're going to have to say, hey, what do you guys want to do with that bow? Uh, I think we're going to have to drop the price and take a loss on it, don't you think? And see, that's what they said. i got some choices to make and some decisions to make there in regard to that. And hopefully they learn something about real life and may even say experience real life. So I say in the name of inefficiency, start using your hands. Here at Faith Builders, we have the, the motto, head, heart, and hands. And I just got to tell you, institutions of higher education, it, in these places, it is hard to keep the hands in this business. Because in our world, it's all about how you can know things faster. And I want to tell you something, and I think you already know this, but really knowing something takes time. It's impossible to know something deeply fast. As a child, I can say I know God. But it takes a lifetime of relationship with God and experiences with God. And that's why now I think I can say that I know God better than I did when I was 15. Because it's not just knowledge. There's an experience that comes with this. And it transformed that knowledge into something bigger than knowledge itself. And I think I have a relationship with the Lord. And I think that I can say that I know God in ways today that I didn't know Him before. It's not an event. It takes time. And one of the things that I think we have to reckon with is our students live in a a world where that is being taken away from them. And I think technology is something that, as Anabaptist educators, we have to equally reckon with. Now, you have probably heard many people talk about the dangers of technology, and I'm just going to try to completely avoid going there today. I feel like that's an example of having a knowledge of something but never getting past that. We never get to wisdom. And I, I hope that when you walk out of this session, that one of the things, if you forget everything else that I say, I hope that you remember this, and that is that we really need teachers right now to actually speak into the technological age. Obviously, we need parents and pastors and other people to do the same thing, but I think we're very thirsty for teachers to do it. And I've heard a lot of knowledgeable things said about technology. It is danger- Facebook is dangerous because of this. Social media is dangerous because of this. The Internet is dangerous because of that. Uh, the smartphone will hurt you in this way. Those are knowledgeable statements. But we have to get beyond that. That is not really that helpful other than to give us a starting place. So I think it's really important to recognize that technology is not a new animal. Absolutely not. You know, the car has revamped our lives tremendously. And there was a generation that had to make decisions about the car. And we know that they didn't all agree agree on it. The printing press has revamped our lives tremendously. All of these things have had huge impact on who we are as a people. A struggle with technology is not a new thing. We have to be careful that we don't start a new method of struggling with it where we complain about how bad it is, but that's all the farther we ever go. So I think we need wise men and women to show us the way. Once again, talking about experience. To actually demonstrate, this is how you can live in this world. This is how you can live in this age. May I show you. So I've tried to resist the urge, and don't worry. We have our moments 
in my classroom where I spew forth on technology. Sometimes we need to do that. Young people need to be reminded of the dangers and have the knowledge planted there. But my goal is to do something more than that with my students. My goal is to actually demonstrate a way to live in this world. So I think, uh, oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I think there's uh, an important element that needs to be there, and that is that we have a say-do mentality, not just a say mentality. So an example, and, and I, the last thing I would want to do is even toot my horn in regard to technology because I just tell you it's one of the biggest questions that my wife and I often ask ourselves, how, how do we live in this, in this age? And we're always struggling with it. But one of the things that we've chosen to do, and you can, you, you're welcome to be critical of this, uh, I think you know, we, we have to make some calls about it. So I think you know, cell phones have changed our lives. My wife and I have, have decided that we're going to use a cell phone a certain way. And that is that a phone for us is going to do two things. And I know that the new, the new phones can do a lot more than this. But for us, a cell phone is going to do two things. It's going to call people. And it's going to text people. We're not going to go on the internet with it, even though our phone is capable of going on the internet. That's not what a cell phone is for us. And and once again, I'm not saying that that has to be everybody's decision, but my desire is to actually be someone that, to my students, I don't just complain about the technological age. I say, hey, this is my attempt at living in it. This is how we're going to do it. And we're even a little more radical than that. We've made another decision about our phone. Phones, you can get a plethora of, of apps on phones anymore, and we've just decided we're not going to do apps on our phone. It does two things. It can call and text without, without apps. So we, ha- we actually have a smartphone, but our, our attempt is to use that smartphone for two things, to call people and to text people. And, and one of the things that I, that I just really want to encourage you in as teachers is to be people that don't just say things about technology but be people that your students can look at. And I, I'm telling you, tremendously young students, those of you in elementary can do things here. They can look at you and say, so that's how to live in this age. And I think our communities are, are very thirsty for people that are willing to show how to live in a te- technological age, not just people that want to talk about it, say how bad it is. So, swords to plowshares. like to review. On the anvil, we've said that we should require our students to make choices. That's one of the ways. 1,700 degree knowledge, we said. That's one of the ways that we get them to a place where we can actually shape and mold and bend. So we ask them to make choices. We also ask them to know by experience. You're never too young to know by experience. We also ask them to just know things because we said it. But that's not our weak area. And experience real life at school. That's one of my goals this coming year, speaking to myself as much as to you, is to make 2016-2017 a year when my students experience real life at FBCS in my classroom. And I recognize we have to be creative in order for that to happen. Thank you. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.